Put your glasses up to your life. Books and books in a pile in the back. Wife begging me to stay, but I gave my life to the track. Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman, and uh, welcome to my brand new venture. I have no idea how it's going to go. I've called it Two Riders Slinging Yang, which is two, <laughs> two, two riders uh, talking about writing. And uh, I call it Slinging Yang because I always thought it was like the funniest, weirdest expression. And uh, I always kind of liked it. And for a long time, I would say Slinging Yang and not even know what it meant. And uh, <laughs> what can I tell you? My first, uh, first guy I'm having on here is, uh, is Howard Bryant. And um, I've been a, a colleague of, of Howard's for a long time. He's a, uh, I'd say these days, um, uh, Howard, should I say you're best known? Would you say you're best known as a ESPN writer or as an author? Oh, I would have no idea. I would guess probably uh, ESPN, the magazine, I would think. Yeah, I would say so too. But I am um, so, so Howard is, is uh, you can, you can find his work very often on the, on the, in the back of ESPN, the magazine. Um, and, uh, he's an ESPN senior writer. Uh, he's written for everyone. I mean, you worked at the Washington post, Boston Herald, Bergen record, uh, San Jose, Mercury news, Oakland tribune. Um, you've written a, a ton of really good books. My favorite, uh, my favorite of yours is, uh, is the last hero, a life of, of, of Henry Aaron. And, um, I've a, here's a, here's a story. I don't even know if you remember this, but this actually happened. We were, uh, we were covering Major League Baseball at the same time. Um, I don't remember who you would have been with at the time. It was probably around 2001. And um, we were at Cubs. Well, that was probably at the record. Maybe at the record. But we were at Cubs. For some reason, we were in Arizona at Cubs spring training. And you and I were entering the uh, facility for a game. And uh, an, I'd say a middle-aged couple comes up, and they turn to you, and they say, do you know where our seats are and, and show you your tickets? And you literally go, do I look like an usher? And it was one of the greatest moments ever. Again, that was, that was 2003. I was at the Herald. Uh, 2003. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember that vividly. And I don't even know if you do, but there was something about like, there was something in your voice that was so like, it was basically like, you didn't say, are you fucking kidding me? But you did say, are you fucking kidding me? All at the same time. And it was just, this, I don't, it probably went over their heads. Like it probably went over their heads. But I just remember that. And the other thing I remember, and you wouldn't remember this, and uh, maybe I'm even imagining this. I remember when I was at SI, right after September 11th happened in 2001, I was at a scene where, where they were interviewing someone involved with 9-11. It may have been a cop who was hurt. And I think you were there. Is this, no. did you? Probably. I was, I was at the record in, uh, for 9-11. I was living on 49th and 10th. And what were you doing? Like, what were you doing? I was covering the Yankees. And, and what was it sort of like all hands on deck with 9-11? Is that what happened? Yes. Uh, the next day, September 11th, I was in the city, obviously. September 12th, I went down to Ground Zero. I wasn't at Ground Zero on, on, on the same day. I went the next day and then the day after that. So the next two days... Because, you know, they shut baseball down and there was no availability with the Yankees. And anybody at the record who lived in Manhattan at the time, you know, they put us they put us to work, obviously, to go do news side. So, yeah, I was down there. What do you remember about that? Was that a, uh, I mean, I was going to say good experience, obviously not a good experience. Was it what was it? 
Well, obviously, I think the thing you remember most was the, was the chaos. And I think you remember, uh, to me, I remember mostly everything shutting down. The fact that you couldn't make a phone call on 9-11 for hours. Cell phone. I, I remember using a payphone. It might have been the last time I actually used a payphone. Right. Uh, I remember going across the street into the bodega and seeing all the the first responders coming up the island and they were all just covered in covered in ash and and dirt and everything and, and then going down there the next day that was really sort of the 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 demarcating line between who had been there all night and who was was just going on duty was you could look at their shoes and their shoes pretty much told you if they were if they were already in it or if they were just getting started it was awful right so if you're a uh... This is why I didn't, I didn't even already I didn't see this going this way. But if you're a um, when you're a writer and you're writing about something like that and you're asking people questions, do you I don't know. I you know, I remember at SI we had to write about 9-11 and I felt almost stupid. I, I almost felt like a, an uninvited voyeur or an uninvited guest where I shouldn't have been, um, where it almost felt trivial. Like, yeah, I need to write about this, but it's so much bigger than me writing about it. You know, like, I don't know. Did you? Were you comfortable writing about 9-11? Is it, is it, well, I think there's a couple things that work for me. I think one is that we spend a lot of time in J school learning about inverted pyramid and, and learning about covering fires and, and doing all these things. But the thing about sports especially, and then obviously if you're when you're in the field doing cops and doing some news side, they never really teach you how to ask questions. Yeah. That's the one thing I remember about J school is that I never remember – actually having any sort of crash course in how to ask people questions, especially in, in covering a beat and being in baseball, where you're face-to-face -face with people in their workspace. And this isn't phone work. You're there for 10, you know, for 10 months for the most part. You're there from every day in spring training down to about the end of October if your team is good. And you have to figure out a way to extract information from people who don't want to talk to you. And they don't teach us that. What's even worse was the 9-11 necessity that we all pitch in on it in places where it felt obscene, it felt grotesque to even talk about it. Why were we in the clubhouse asking Derek Jeter his feelings on geopolitics? Right. Why, why am I asking Kurt Schilling or Mike Stanton or, or David Justice how they feel about this when the bottom line was that they weren't paying any attention to it at all? Why were we trying to find local hooks on things that didn't that were far too important? And so you're you're making players or the players themselves were trying to establish a, a year edition that they didn't have on a subject that they didn't know anything about. And we were trying to create links where they didn't really exist. In retrospect, obviously, there was some form of catharsis that the players and that sports provided and obviously when we look at where sports is today it was obviously you know it was a, it was a, a a demarcating line in terms of the flags and the tanks and the patriotism and the flyovers and everything else to to where we would get to but 100 percent i remember 9-11 mostly for wanting to be anywhere but inside a clubhouse because it, your life felt so meaningless. Asking these questions felt so meaningless. It all felt stupid to me.
Yeah, I actually, I got to say, that really, I remember, I was at the game, the Piazza. Were you at the Piazza Carse game? No, I was with the Yankees. We were in Chicago. Oh, fine. So I was at that Piazza game, and I remember afterwards this sort of baseball-saved New York narrative. That's right. And I hated it. I mean, I hated it because well, I thought it was so a... simplistic. Well, exactly, and that's part of the book that I'm working on now. I'm actually working on the 9-11 chapter, and that is really one of the interesting things about it. In retrospect, I was with the with Joe Torrey a couple of weeks ago in New York, reminiscing about, you know, talking about some of the, the, those moments. And I remember he was saying the same thing about how baseball was the last thing on anybody's mind, but then they started to buy into this narrative when they went down to the armory and they started talking to people and people began to identify sports through, or, or, you know, identify the, the healing process through sports. And I was never quite sure I bought that. Uh, and I think that what was very, very interesting about that, too, was how quickly it became not just a narrative, but an unassailable narrative. And you were the one who was the problem. You were the problem if you even challenged it, which was very much like everything that took place post 9-11. Right. Um, it's actually funny or not funny, but I, uh, I was Googling you a few minutes ago and I came across, of course, Fox News Insider. Um, Everybody loves it when police officers sing the national anthem before sporting events. Or so we thought. ESPN the magazine, Howard <laughs> Bryant, wrote in a new column that cops singing the Star Spangled Banner is stage patriotism, arguing that it signals an authoritarian authoritarian shift in the ballpark. Um, and I agree with you. I think I find the whole forced patriotism thing, and then also when you throw in the sort of the way Colin Kaepernick is now being, you know, dealt with by the NFL, um, jarring to say the to say the least. Well, I think that they didn't even read the column. They didn't even deal with what I was talking about. The point of that column wasn't the response that I got, which was, hey, man, what are you saying that, <laughs> that, that, that cops can't sing the national anthem? That was not the point of the story. The point of the story was, was that you are asking athletes to be political. We are asking – we always say that we want athletes to speak up. And we've criticized Michael Jordan for speaking out and we credit for not speaking out. Mm -hmm. And we, and we wanted, we want these guys to give us something more than a canned response. And my position on that column, as it is now was you're asking a lot of the player when the player's employer in his workspace is incorporating these elements. How could you ask LeBron James to take a position on Tamir Rice when his team is having law enforcement appreciation night. Right. That's the point. The point is, is that you're, you're, you're putting the player in an incredibly difficult position when you're not even paying attention to how much the work environment, how the game day experience at the ballpark is changing and it's suffocating the very conversations you say you want from the players. And obviously when you add Kaepernick to it, you recognize that the players the players understand something that media seems not to be willing to accept, even though it's right in front of our faces, which is sports has incorporated law enforcement as part of it, as part of the game day experience. So when you challenge what happened with Freddie Gray, or if you challenge Tamir Rice, you're also challenging your employer, as Colin Kaepernick is finding out. Right. It's the, 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 the team itself is not neutral on these subjects. The team is is essentially, in a lot of ways, a business partner with law enforcement. 
And that puts the athlete in a very, very difficult position. You better be a superstar. Once again, as Colin Kaepernick is finding out, you better be untouchable with your play on the field. If you're going to take on law enforcement these days, it's very, very different than than we saw in the, the 70s or the 80s or even even in the 60s. Yeah. You know, there's a story I've pitched about a million times and I've never had anyone take me up on it, which is um, I and you've I, I, you've you've probably written about this at some point. Um because you're kind of more ballsy than I am in some, in some regard. Um, I'm fascinated by, like, just as an example, Billy Donovan, a coach at Oklahoma City and the longtime coach at Florida, is a, yeah. uh, is a very, very politically conservative man. Yeah. Um, and he goes into, oftentimes, inner cities where families oftentimes rely on public services, where they rely on after-school programs, where a lot of these kids are nurtured um, and their skills are developed by going to gyms that are funded by different and when they go in and, and he will go in and he will recruit these guys and then he will repeatedly vote for politicians and support politicians who are for defunding these programs who have shown no interest in, and i always think there's this really interesting contrast between the people the employees the players um and the owners and the coaches and i've, I've always been fascinated by how there's such a gap you would think if you're if you're Billy Donovan and you see what it is to grow up in the projects or you see what it is to grow up in rural America, that you would be more empathetic to the plight. And I don't see that that often. But no, am I being simplistic here? No, you, you would think so. But on the other hand, you would only think so if you didn't if you if you if you weren't cognizant of just how much the power structure uh, is. Is, you know how how strong that that structure works in in, in basketball and in all, in all sports. The structure is in a lot of ways um, a reminder that the player is just a worker. The player is just even though they've got massive talent. I mean, the thing for me, the reason why I enjoy sports the most, the reason why I cover sports isn't because I'm really interested in the final score. Mm-hmm. The reason why I cover sports is because. Sports and entertainment are the only two areas in America where the employee has the most power because of their talent. You could be replaced tomorrow. I could be replaced tomorrow, as we have been (laughs) at some points during our careers. But there's only one LeBron James. There's only one Kobe Bryant for that length of time when they're that good. So they, as employees, have a level of, of leverage and influence and power that the rest of us simply don't have. There's one Madonna. There's one Prince. There's one Beyonce. And so for that period of time when they are at their best, you have to deal with them. And what's happening now, especially as we move more toward analytics, we move more toward fantasy, we move more toward the, the shifting the influence of the game or the power of the game from the player to the front office. You don't have to care about the player anymore. The fans don't necessarily have to care about players anymore. Uh, you know, tonight's the night of the NBA draft, and, and, and you listen to the, to the front offices now, and they talk about players as assets. Right. They're not even people. They're assets. Right. And, and for, from, for some people, because they've reached a period in their lives now where they are the same age as the executives, players, you know, people that they watched when, when, they, were, when they were kids, like Danny Ainge, for example. You may identify with the front office more. And so now you really do look at them as just pieces. They're just widgets. And that that undermines the power that the player has. 
it may not undermine their salary, but it undermines their power. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I, uh, I'm going to say this for, for, uh, in context. You're African-American. I am white. Um, one thing that has always made me very uncomfortable in sports, and maybe, maybe you don't think about it, or maybe it's nothing. I hate when I hear African, in particular, African-American players. When they call owners mister? Or when they call them my owner. Oh, my owner, yeah. Holy cow. Am I, do you, do you, do you feel like, no, it's, uh, go it's ahead. Incredibly, it's incredibly paternalistic, and I, and I really dislike it. And I, I am of the school that the players don't recognize how much power they have. They don't really want to use their power anyway because that paycheck is easy. All they have to do is go to work and come back until, until they need the power. And then it's probably probably too late. There are a lot of conventions in sports that I find to be just a step off of the plantation. Of course, people get all upset. Well, the guy's making $10 million. How can it be a plantation? Right. Well, it can be whatever it is. <laughs> you know, right. it, can be, it can be many, many things. Right. And we, we are allowed to multitask. And so th that being the case, th a lot of different environments may not be complete apples to apples analogies, but they do have elements of other things that are, that are unattractive. I, for example, uh, I was thinking about this when I was watching, I was watching, what was I watching? I was watching the 30 for 30 on the XFL. Yeah. And, and the XFL was recruiting players. Okay. How are we going to get players? And they, went back and forth to about three or four different players talking about how this guy was working at bed and bath when the phone call came from Vince McMahon or whomever to, to join this new league. And this guy was working at home Depot and this guy was working at Lowe's. And I'm thinking you went to USC, you went to Texas, you went to LSU. These are some of the best schools in the country where are your degrees. Right. So in other words, how much progress have we really made? And what is this thing that we're talking about if the minute you're done using your body or the minute your body gives out on you, you have no skills? Then this whole thing is a fraud. It's a sham. Yep. And how different, is, how different is it from, I don't want to say, you know, obviously college is closer to slavery in many ways, but essentially is that you're using your body. Right. You're not using you're not using your mind. And supposedly the, the progress that we've made in this country is that everybody gets to use their mind. But if you're still using your body and your body fat is more important than what your brain produces, then you're just a mule. No matter how good your jump shot is, that yep. hasn't changed. Um, I always say to people, this is my so I did um, years ago. I went to uh, I was in Gary. I spent a lot of time. You've been to Gary, Indiana. Home of the Jackson Five. Also home of Lyman Bostock. And Lyman Bostock, may he rest in peace. I have driven through Gary, Indiana once and and hoped that I wouldn't have to drive through there again. Yeah. So I um you know, this job as you know and I know it, like it takes you a lot of places and you it see. It takes things you places, you absolutely. It does. And um I would say I've never been to a city and I've been to a, you know, I've been to the bad cities in America. I've never been to a place like Gary, Indiana. And I always say I think everyone should spend some time in Gary, Indiana. I, in fact, when Latroy yeah. Hawkins is from Gary, and when I did his profile on him, as soon as I told him I'd spend time in Gary, he's like, seriously? And I'm like, I think everyone should go to Gary. And I always say, like, you take it, let's say there's some quarterback recruit from Gary, Indiana. So the public schools probably have a 60 to 70% dropout rate. Um, they pay, they underpay, they have substandard teachers, blah, 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 blah. There's a quarterback. 
he barely, you know, he, whatever he, he, he makes the, uh, whatever he needs to go to university of Texas, you throw in there immediately. He has to take, you know, whatever a full schedule of classes. Then he has to devote 40 hours per week to football. He's going to travel like, and, and, and you're going to throw him into this campus, a, a, a world he can't even imagine. Um, and, and we expect it to just be, and we expect you should just be happy and appreciative because this is great. This is your dream coming true. And then if they, if it doesn't work out, we blame them and it that's drives right. me crazy. Yeah, no question. And that's the, that's the whole thing. I mean, this is the, the, the sports, the bubble in so many different ways is, should be collapsing in front of our eyes, but we don't let it collapse because we spend so much time making it seem like the player's talent mitigates all of the other dirty things that that create the environment itself that you won you won the athletic gene pool you won the the draft lottery you know this that was one of the things that i've really been trying to work on over the past couple of years i think every year when you're starting to think about what your column is going to look like when you start thinking about okay how what do i want to say and how do i want to say it and what themes do i want to concentrate on for some of the columns this year that was one of them it was like I am so tired and so disgusted by and sick of promulgated by both black and whites in both sides of the spectrum, whether it's the player, whether it's media, whether it's front office, this whole debtor in jail narrative. How much progress have we really made if debtor in jail is are your two choices if you when you're working on your jump shot right or when you're when you're working on your 40 time well if it weren't for football i remember there was a john wall story that we ran i think mike wise wrote it and 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 it was a perfectly fine story but i was so upset with it because once again you got john wall who went to kentucky if it weren't for basketball i would you know i'd be dead or in jail and i just sat there and i was like enough already there's something wrong with all of this there's something there's something wrong with it as a narrative I'm not even sure it's a true it's a true narrative. And if it's a true narrative, then we failed and everything has failed if 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 this is the importance of sports. And and I and I tend to, you know, I agree with you. I feel like there are so many pieces to this, so many layers to this that we've simply ignored because we mitigate all of it with money. Oh, well, he's rich now. And then that's it. And so that answers all the questions. And it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't answer hardly any of them. You know what's very fascinating is uh, I never that there's one thing you just said that I never really thought about, which is dead and in, in jail has become a throwaway line. It's, like, absolutely, it's a, and, and that's the disgusting part of it to me. Yeah. It is a total throwaway line, and it's something that both sides sort of profit from. One side gets to one side gets to to talk about this as if it's some sort of badge and some sort of accomplishment. And the other side gets to take the paternalistic approach that they saved you yeah. from death or the, from death or prison when they're actually still just exploiting you when what they really should be doing is educating you. So if you don't have a jump shot, you still have other options. Yeah, that there, are, uh, there are other things that are possible for you that maybe one day, believe it or not, maybe you could be an owner or you could be a GM or you could be one of those things. It's really interesting to me, Jeff, when you talk about the NBA, and I guess I'm thinking about basketball tonight because of the draft, Mm -hmm. that we all talk about the NBA because it's an 80% black league and because you've had so many black coaches and because people seem to think that race isn't an issue 
necessarily in basketball. How many black coaches can you name in the NBA who did not play? How many, how many uh, Lawrence Frank stories where you get to be the assistant or the, the Eric Spolstra story? Where or you Brad Stevens. Eight, or Brad Stevens. Well, at least he coached in college where you get to be the Eric Spolstra where you were the AV guy, the Lawrence right. Frank where you were the, you were the, you were the low-level video guy and you turn out to be a head coach. Right. I mean, I can only count Bill Russell became the first black head coach in a major sport in 66. That was 51 years ago. And I don't think there have been 12. I think Fisdale with uh, Memphis is the, was the last one. I can't think, I don't think, there have not been 15 black coaches in the history of the NBA who weren't former players. That's amazing. So what's that tell you about opportunity? Yeah, exactly. It's really fascinating. It also, I just think there's, you know, I was going to ask you about, so it's kind of funny. I always say, um, I feel like as a, I feel like as a, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like as a, as a white guy, sometimes it's kind of like the John Rocker story, which I wrote, right? Where I always thought. Your famous John Rocker story, my famous, of course. Or infamous, depending on your perspective. But <laughs> I always, people say like, how do you explain that? And I always say like, I just think he felt we were two white guys driving. And of course I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to look no, out exactly. for Exactly. You're and, part of the in crowd. And I feel like in media, I kind of feel the same way a little bit. Like, I, um, for, I, I think there are, but I'm sure you're aware of it, but I think there are perceptions. I've talked to Mike Freeman, also went to Delaware, like I did about this. We've talked about this a little. Um, people presume things in the media. I mean, it's not, it's not that much better in media, if it is at all, than sort of in the actual with the athletes. I mean, I, I think there are perceptions of African-American writers among white writers, especially veteran white writers, that are not discussed openly. Number one being, oh, he got his break because of so-and-so. Number two, oh, that guy talks to him. He's at an, adva he's at an advantage in the locker room because he's black. Um, and I wonder, how aware are you? This sounds dumb, but how aware are you of these things? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a factor of your life. I mean, I think that one of, the, one of the biggest examples of race, I mean, for example, what are we talking about here? I mean, I talk about race all the time and people talk, I mean, people ask me, well, why are you always talking about race? I said, well, it's also one of the things that people ask me about the most as well. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Willie Randolph back when he was coaching with the Yankees and when he was a third base coach and bench coach. And he was talking about how people get on me all the time for talking about race, yet those are the only questions that I get asked. Yeah, and so there's a, there's a, a catch 22 there where you get blamed for, for playing the race card, which is a phrase that I loathe. Yeah. And yet at the same time, the only time people have a curiosity within you, the only time they're interested in you is when they want to ask you about race. So they don't really care about the rest of your life. They don't care about the rest of your interests. They don't have any interest in you except to talk about the very thing that they will criticize you for talking about. Secondarily, I think that I always use this phrase, it's the assumption of competence. White people, for the most part, afford, well, white men, at least, afford each other the assumption of competence. Whereas for me, when I walk into a press box, I got my job because of affirmative action. Or when I get a story, it's because the guy I talked to was black and therefore I'm black. But yet, yet they don't recognize that the, the redneck corner in the clubhouse doesn't talk to me, but they talk to you for the very same reasons. They don't, they don't think about their advantages and also 
how many advantages do I really have when the game is 8% black? Yeah. I mean, who am I actually talking to? There are only 62 black players in a game of 750 players. That doesn't sound like an advantage to me. And so what they're really talking about is that they're threatened by the fact that you're there in the first place. They don't want you there. I remember one day back when the economies were wiping jobs out like they're, like they're doing now, but this was sometime in the early, early 2000s. And one of the things that, you know, you've heard it before, I've heard it before, where you know, someone doesn't get a job and there's the, you know, the word that the next job has to go to a minority. So these are the things that sort of embitter the, the white guy, even though they pretty much have all of the jobs. And so I walked into the press box at Fenway one day for a Yankees Red Sox and I looked around and I just said it out loud in front of, and I was the only black reporter in the press box. And I was like, I thought all the jobs were going to minorities. Where are they? The only <laughs> black guy here. Yeah, where are like, they? I, I, I thought you guys couldn't get jobs. I thought every job was supposed to go to us. Right. And they just, you know, I remember George King and Danny Graziano and the rest of these guys, they all sort of looked at you, you know, Bob Clappish. But I'm like, I was like, how about an answer, fellas? Right. Maybe it's not what you think it is. Maybe it's exactly what it looks like, which is there's one of me in here and 60 of you. Yeah. I got to say, when I was, I remember uh, when I was at Sports Illustrated, uh, we had every year they would have a state of the magazine meeting and they would fly in the entire staff. This is when money was really good. And there were, we, so we were covering pros, we were covering sports. There was one African American in the room. It was Phil Taylor. He was the Phil only Phil Taylor, probably right. Yeah, great writer, Phil Taylor. And the the uh, one of the editors is sort of talking about the state of the magazine, and it's so painfully obvious. And I actually I actually raised my hand and said because they took questions. And I said, "Are you guys doing anything to diversify um, the staff?" And the guy said, "Well." We're not, we haven't really been able to find any qualified minority writers, but if anyone knows of any, give us let a us name. know. Let us let us know. And I remember just being how, like, unbelievable. How hard are you? How hard are you looking? Yeah, exactly. That's how hard how, are you? That looking? sounds like that sounds like Kennesaw Mountain Land as well. You know, we, we don't have any right. prohibitions against black players. Just none of them have told us they want to play in the big leagues. Exactly. Um, let me ask you this: Do you um, the actual process of writing? Not reporting, mm-hmm. not whatever. Sitting down and oh, writing. book writing, book. yes. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I think you have to. Do you and have I think to? that I, I think more than exactly. <laughs> I think more than than having to enjoy it. You have to enjoy editing. You have to enjoy all of it. I mean, to me, when I'm working on a book project, I always have what I refer to as my my five steps of anxiety. And there's only really one of them that I don't enjoy. I mean, the first one I enjoy very much is, do I have an idea? Mm-hmm. And that's something where you sit down and you're thinking about, okay, from a book standpoint, is this, can this idea sustain a narrative? Can it sustain 80,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 words? How big is this project? Or is it, is it a magazine piece? Is it a series of columns? Do you have a thread that, is going to allow you to tie these ideas together. I mean, the, the book I'm working on now, which is about race, sports, and patriotism, same thing. You have all these different little pieces of an idea, and then at one point, it starts to coagulate into something. Okay, there is an idea here. Uh, step two is, can I get it? It's one thing to have the idea. It's another thing to, to have the sources and to have the resources and to have the opportunity and the time to put this story together, to, to uh, 
to to play the notes in your head. Can I, you know, do I have what it takes to get this story the right way? Mm -hmm. There was a book, there was a book that I really, really wanted to do after, I think it was before the Aaron book. I think it was before, it was in between Juicing the Game and, and Last Hero. I wanted to do a, a bio of John Coltrane, but I just didn't have the chops to get it. I don't know how to read music. I didn't have, and I looked out there at all the different books out there that were done that was that had been done on Coltrane, and they were just better than what I thought I could produce. Wow! So is that way is that um? So when that happens, you have this idea, and you, maybe you're excited about the idea for a little bit. Oh, Coltrane. Exactly. Cool. So you're really, really excited about it, and then you start looking at the body of work that's out there, and you look at what's been done, and you're like, yeah, I can't compete with this. Or you look at what's out there, and you say, hey, I have something to say on this, and I think that there's a piece of this that I can do really, really well. Uh, that's that step two of anxiety. Can I get it? And sometimes that's where a lot of books go to die. Right. Um, step three is doing the work. And I think that doing the work is where – you do sort of separate who is committed to this and who simply wants to have a book. I've had many, many people say to me, I want to have written a book, but I don't want to write it, which right. goes back to your question of, do you have to enjoy it or do you enjoy it? You have to be able to sit down and chop that tree down. You're not going to write 80,000 words in one sitting. Like you can procrastinate on a column and you can sit down and say, okay, I'm late on this and I can get this thing done. You can't do that with a book. You've got to, as you know, and, and I don't know how, how quickly you write or how much how, I mean, you're one of the most prolific writers and the speed and the, I've always marveled at the way you can do that. I can't do the, the, the book writing that, that you can do. Uh, That's because I have no life. Just to be <laughs> But for, for me, I mean, I've got about maybe, maybe 2,500 to 3,000 words tops per day. I can't write any more than that. And then it just becomes gibberish and then it starts to it starts to fall apart. Right. So I'm pretty much fifteen hundred to two thousand words every day. I think that's a that's, lot. That's a yeah, lot. Yeah. It can be a lot. And sometimes I got eight hundred in me. Yeah. But I want to finish some sections. So I think that you I, I think doing the work is is where you start to realize and especially it reminds me of a conversation I had with Frank Robinson when I was working on the Aaron book. I just wanted to talk to Frank because he and Henry were contemporaries. And here's Frank Robinson when he was managing the Nationals, all pissed off about the fact that he didn't want to talk to me because who are you to make money off of me? I said, money? Right. How much money do you think we're making here? I, mean, <laughs> I was like, let's – and, and he's of that old school where, you know, the, those players and especially the black players didn't make a lot of money back then. It was it was during the reserve clause. It was pre-free agency. So they're always very wary about who's getting rich off of them. And I was like, Frank, I got $17,500 for my first book and it took two and a half years to write it. Do the math. Is that shut out? That was your first. One. Yeah, that was shut out. Do the math. I got seventeen five to do that book and it took two and a half years to do it. Right. Right. That's way below the poverty line you i love that stuff i love because you love say, it oh you're you, i i love that line you're getting rich yeah it's like you're getting rich off of me yeah right i'm not I, rich, like, off, I'm not rich off of anybody i'm devoting it's like i'm devoting my life to this project like it's not people don't mm -hmm. get it when you say it's not about the money oh uh, yeah it isn't it can't be no there's only one way it's about the money, and that's if you're writing a book that you know is going to make money. If you know that you're writing, I said, look, if I was really about the money, I'd be, you know, I'd be writing the, uh, you know, the unauthorized story of Adele. Okay, people might read that, you know, but you're really going to write a book about race and, and, and baseball? I mean, this is a story. This is a game of heroes. This and, and this is an unheroic story. Most people aren't going to. 
they want to feel good when they read baseball books and, and then they read mine. You want to feel good about them. Then you read the ones I write and they're very, very different. Right. Yeah. And so, and I think that, I, I think that that is the, the misconception that comes with doing this. Now, if they're going to take your book, if you're Michael Lewis and they're going to turn them into movies and everything, sure, you can make a lot of money doing this. But if that's your goal, if the goal of writing books is making money, you are making a gigantic, colossal mistake, especially if the book's going to have any substance to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, your Hank Aaron book but, is one of my, I consider your Aaron book one of the great biographies of the last, whatever, decade. I mean, I just, I think it's, I just love it. And I put it right there with, I don't know, Jonathan Haig on Lou Gehrig and Kriegel on Namath. I did uh, and and uh, or how long did that how long did that take you? Uh, that was a four year project. And that was four years. And what's funny about that book was Dan Frank, my editor at Pantheon, was really really supportive, and he was fantastic because at that time Henry had not agreed to speak to me. So I had done something that I had said that I was never going to do in my career again, which is to take a leap of faith that I was going to get this book. And it was two when we signed that deal. It was late 2005, early 2006, and that was right before Bonds was was nearing he, Bonds was nearing the all time record, and of course Henry had gone underground because he didn't want to be part of the whole right. circus that was Barry Bonds and steroids and indictments and the record, so he wasn't talking at all. And I remember trying to talk to his people, Alan Tannenbaum, and trying to get a hold of those guys and let them know that no, I really want to write a full biography. And they were convinced once again that this was just another guy who was trying to make Henry look bad in the face of Barry Bonds breaking his record or you're trying to get something sensational, trying to get Henry to say something ridiculous. I said, no, I actually really want to go from 1934 to the present. This book is about the man. It's not about Barry Bonds. I'm like, I don't care about Barry Bonds. And so that took almost two years. So Henry and I didn't have our first sit down until 2008. And I had, I was already had been researching that book for two years. Wait, so how did you, what was the actual way you got him? Was it just being persistent? It was just by being persistent. It was chopping that tree down, constantly working and trying to convince Alan Tannenbaum, his, his lawyer, his agent, that I was the person of substance that I said that I was and that the book was going to have the substance and the direction and the focus upon Henry that I, that I had promised. And that finally he agreed and I remember specifically I was speaking at a class at Boston University when when Henry finally allowed me to talk to him. And I called his house and we had a, we we talked for a few minutes and, and uh, we talked for about then it turned out I had to call him back. We talked for another 15 minutes and and he asked me out of all the things that I had told him about. And I really had decided, obviously, as you know, when you do this that you're going to go forward with the book no matter what. Mm -hmm. You don't need his permission. I was hoping for his blessing. I was hoping he would talk to me. It wasn't going to be an authorized book. It wasn't an as told to. He wasn't going to be part of it or make any money off of it. So he really didn't have any incentive to talk to me unless he believed that, that me telling his story would be good for him. And I remember finally him saying to me, I, I have one question for you. And I said, yes, sir. He said, how many pages is it going to be? And that was a really interesting Hank Aaron question to ask because here's a man who never felt appreciated. And I think he's, he, and I said to him, I said, I look at my bookshelf and I see big books on big people. I see a big book on Joe DiMaggio by Richard Ben Kramer. I see a big book on Ted Williams by Ed Lynn. There's another big book on Ted Williams by Lee Montville. There's a, 
there's there are big books the Jonathan Ide book on Gehrig there's there's Jane Levy's book on 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 Sandy Koufax I said there's no book on you why aren't you part of this why aren't you on the top shelf of my bookcase I want you there and I want to tell the story that's awesome and and, you know, and I told him also, and I don't know if this had anything to do with it. And I said, and there's a Willie Mays bio coming out next year. I said, where's Henry Aaron? And then he said to me, um, how many pages do you think it'll be? And that told me once again that here's a guy who wanted respect. And one of my agents, you know, my agent had said to me that in America, respect is measured in the size of that biography. If you've, got, if you've got one of those big doorstop biographies, chances are you did something special. And, and that's really true. I never looked at it that way, but when you think about it, those big books are for big people. They're reserved for big people. And for Henry Aaron not to be there, and you know, not, no disrespect to Lonnie Wheeler or to his autobiography, but the you know, I Had a Hammer was really the only serious Aaron book out there. And I was like, give me an opportunity to, to tell a full story about somebody who deserves it. And That's luckily, cool. luckily for me, he was into it. Now let me see this. Cause I always, just as an example, Brett Favre, my latest book, he did not talk. And yep. people always ask, they always, you know, you do the whole talk radio circuit and they'll say, well, Brett didn't talk. How would that affect it? And I kind of have my stage answer, which is, yep. well, you know, you, you know, he's talked so much over the years, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't impact it, but obviously it does. And I wonder, yeah, of like, course it does. So how does, how is your book different um, without Aaron? And, and does it cause you, the sitting down with Hank Aaron, does it cause you at all to be more sympathetic or more willing to overlook something if he is uncomfortable with it? Do you know what I mean? Does it affect you? And are there negatives to having a guy talk with you? Or, or Absolutely, there are negatives. Absolutely. And I think the biggest negative is what happens when you find something you're not supposed to find or they don't want you to find. What happens? And Henry and I had a couple of moments like that. One was his bankruptcy in the early 70s and obviously his divorce uh, from his first wife, Barbara, uh, back in the late 1960s. And I think that those two things, because we didn't have the relationship that we needed to have, those two areas weren't as strong in the book as they should have been. And it's so funny that now he and I are close and now that I, I can call him and we can talk and we, as we do sometimes – we did an event a couple of years ago for his 80th birthday back in 2014 at the Smithsonian. He and I were on stage and he's telling me stories about being a boy scout. And then he's telling me another story <laughs> and he's telling me another story. And I finally said on stage, I said, how come none of this is in the book? <laughs> and he said, well, I got to save a little bit for myself, you know. Uh, but the great part about it was, is that if, and it's timing. You know this. I mean, this is one of those things where if he and I had known each other a longer period of time, then you can get more. And if I had a couple more years on that book, it would have been a better book because his and my relationship would have been better. So there would have been more anecdotes and better stories. I agree with you on the one hand, when you've got a vision for a book, you've got to go for it and you can't you, you can't be stopped whether the, you know, by the subject you know, not talking. But on the other hand, obviously, Brett Favre has things that he's never told anybody that maybe he would have told you. So I think, there's, I think that risk is always worth taking. Do you, do you ever feel like it's, it's the whole thing in a way is flawed? And, and here's what I mean. So I write, I write Brett Favre's life story. You write Hank Aaron's life story. But, but we don't actually know what they were thinking in their heads. Do you know what I mean? No, like, of course not. So it's not... 
is it really a bio? Like, what is it exactly? Do you know what I mean? It's a, you're, I think to me, you're telling a story of a public life. That's the best you can do because you're not in their, in their house. You're not within their four walls. You're not one of their intimates. I think one of the biggest things for Aaron, one of the reasons why that book was so satisfying to me is I had three, I had three major, major obstacles to that book. Obstacle number one, Hank Aaron was born in 1934. I was born in 1968. So the last thing you wanted to do was to write a story about a black man born in the, you know, during the depression with the eyes of somebody who was 12 years old in 1980. You, you might not understand him. You had to dig deep into the narrative to make sure that you were writing about him with the proper eye. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Hank Aaron was born in Mobile, Alabama. I was born in Boston. And if there's one thing people can sniff out, it's, it's a fake when it comes to region. So you had to make sure you, you were able to be in the center of the narrative and you could talk to people who could speak about Henry. And, and, and when you're judging and assessing the moves and the decisions that he made and the decisions that he didn't make, that you weren't looking at them through the eyes of a northerner and then in the eyes of a northerner who was born 34 years after him. Right. So from an authenticity standpoint, you had to make sure that the story was written through the proper lens. And that requires a lot of listening, obviously. And that's one thing we don't do a great job of anymore, considering that most of us are in the business of talking, the writer as pundit. So you have to go back and and go back to your skills. Then the third issue that I had was that I was seven years old when Hank Aaron retired. So I never saw him play. So I don't even have that muscle memory of watching him and seeing the stance and seeing the movements and all of that. And unlike Willie Mays and unlike Michael Jordan and unlike Ali, most of the footage you see of Henry Aaron was not of Henry Aaron, the athlete. It was of Henry Aaron, the 40 year old sagging ball player on the way out, breaking Babe Ruth's record. He's overweight. He's not, doesn't look very athletic. He's not moving the way that you would, you know, when you see Willie Mays, you know, the picture of Willie Mays is as is making the catch. He's 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 twenty he's twenty-three years old making that play. Whereas Henry's forty. So you don't even really have a lot of video footage or um, or film of of seeing him as a as a beautiful young twenty year old. And so you had to really rely on people's memories and rely on the small amounts of footage that you had to really sort of bring him to life. It was a hard project. Yeah, I love that book. I really, I'm not just saying this because you're here. I, I, it's one of my favorites. I just think it's a great, great book. Um, so, at least, I bought a copy. So, there you go. Uh, um, let me ask you so this. Why do you, uh, this is going to sound weird, I guess, and, and totally out of context. So, you and I came along relatively the same time in this business. Um, yeah, but I'm older than you. But not by much, though. I'm older <laughs> 70, 72. You're 68, right? Yeah. So, but we both, you know, we came along around the same time. And uh-huh. um, I would say, you know, we, we, I'm sure we've been in probably 100 press boxes at the same time over the years and, and covered events, similar events. And um, I feel like there aren't many of us left. Like, if you take there aren't. the people who were in press boxes in 1998, the very few of us left. Um, why do you think you've survived or lasted or stuck around? Well, I think the biggest reason is because 
I'm, I am uh, very clear about what I can do and what I can't do. And I'm very clear about what, um, what a, a good confidant of mine refers to as the Christmas tree approach, which is the Christmas tree is my writing. That's what I do in a multimedia world. I don't, I don't confuse the tree of writing, which is, which is my foundation, with the ornaments, which is the TV show or the radio gig or the blogs or the podcasts or, or appearing on television shows. I also try very, very hard to make sure that I am clear with the voice that I have. I'm, I'm not Bill Simmons. I don't try to make you laugh when I'm writing. That's not what I do. I don't. And I remember, you know, as there were other guys, whether it was Rick Riley or Simmons or uh, Norman Chad or some of the other guys who were writing in a different type of style that people tried to emulate because that seemed to be the way to get ahead. I didn't do that because that wasn't what interested me. Uh, I also think that one of the reasons was because I, I'm one of the last guys, and I think and I'm, I'm grateful for this, obviously, that there was a clear path to what I did. There was, you know, you could start a career through newspaper and then have it amount to something that you that you wanted. You could start out covering high schools, and then you got to colleges, and then pros, and then you were a national writer, then you got to be a columnist. That whole thing is gone now. That that entire structure where you had a, a ladder is gone. Beat writing does not translate to national writing or columnist. Beat writing is now its own sort of dead-end job in a lot of ways. And I, and I think one of the ways, to me, when I think about what has helped me go through, and I'm, I'm sure this is also true of you because we kind of did this in a lot of ways the same way, even though I was newspaper and you were magazine, <clears throat> excuse me, was every book I did helped me. I wasn't, I was not Mike Lupica. I was not, you know, the 20 year old who got tapped on the shoulder to be a columnist. I was not one of those people who made that immediate ascent. I was a newspaper guy that really didn't have a lot of advocates. And so I got to use my brain through books. I didn't get to use my brain through newspaper. I was a beat writer. I was unspectacular. I did the job the best I could, and, but I did the job with a purpose. And that purpose was to get to know enough people that I could tell better stories. And without the book opportunities, I don't think I do make it. I don't think that I'm still here doing this because I don't feel like I was that an editor wanted. I sort of made people pay attention by having book opportunities. That's so interesting. I used to, when I was at SI, I, I'm not just saying, I brought up your name about 8,000 times. I'd be like, Howard Bryant, Howard Bryant. And, uh, I don't know if you ever even did you ever interview at Adasai? I did finally. Thanks. Obviously now now I know why they <laughs> called you know me. Why. It was it was it was you. <laughs> yeah, I interv I interviewed with them right before I joined ESPN. Right at the same time, I interviewed with I interviewed at SI and ESPN within two months of each other. Wow, interesting. Um, well, the way things are going, I'd say I'd say you probably made the right choice. <laughs> so it breaks my heart. It breaks. My, I, final question: Does does it? Are you? Well, I didn't even finish my steps of anxiety. We've oh, got to you're four. right, actually. We haven't gotten to four. Go ahead, please. That's right. Step step four is, is, is the one that I'm sure you have a lot of fun with because I don't even know if you have time to get to this one because you're always on to the next book, which is did I pull it off? 
So you sit there and you've got this book between two covers and you've got all this anxiety about waiting to hear about whether or not you did the job. And, and, you know, we know how that goes. I remember being really frightened at the hall of fame. I'm in Cooperstown for uh, an event with, with Hank Aaron and they were opening up an exhibit for him and he invited me to come and so we could continue. And, uh, and I remember being at the party at the Odasaga Hotel. And, and I hadn't heard from anybody once the book had come out. I hadn't heard a word from anybody. Yeah. And so I was really nervous, very, very nervous. And I was standing there and I was sort of hiding in the back and waving at people because I didn't, once again, you know how these media things go where you really, it's a private party and you were invited, but you don't really feel like you belong there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Andrew Young was there, the you know, former mm-hmm. mayor and former ambassador was there and every bell, you know, the big dogs were there. And here comes Hank Aaron's wife. Oh, boy. And she's making a beeline to me and she's got the index finger out saying, come here. And she's got that sweet, soft, buttery southern accent. Howard, Brian, I need to have a word with you. And I'm like, oh, boy, <laughs> here we go. And she came up to me and she said, I just wanted to let you know that you did a wonderful job, but there's one major problem with your book. Oh, no. And I'm like, here we go. And she said, my part wasn't big enough. And that sort of, <laughs> that sort of broke the ice because I hadn't seen Henry either. I didn't know if he'd liked the book or not. I didn't know if he'd read it or not. Right. Uh, but that, that did I pull it off part of anxiety is, is gigantic one because the book is going to the library of congress the book is going to outlive you and your name is on it it's yours it's not a newspaper and it can be discredited it can be torn apart and it's one of these types of things as we know when it comes to history that history lives on top of each other so it's on top of itself so the next hank aaron book if there's another one when there's another one We'll now dissect this book and maybe it won't be a standard, even though I think that it does hold up. And so you have all those anxieties, which I'm sure you're very well aware of. Mm-hmm. And of course, the fifth step is what's next. And I'm actually really happy to be doing another trade book now because I've been doing some kids books lately. And it's been set, you know, it's been seven years since Last Hero came out. And so I don't know about you, but when you start getting a little bit older and you start realizing how much energy books take, you know, you wonder, am I slowing down? Do I still have what it takes to to really do the type of research that needs to be done to give a project the respect that it deserves and the attention it deserves? And um, all of these different things, all these different layers create anxiety on top of themselves. Yeah. And so... At the end of the day, it's still an, an incredible process. But believe me, all of those things that weigh on you on top of actually having to produce and make deadline and all that, it's, uh, it's quite a process. I relate with everything you just said. And I always think in my head that there is a very small group of people in sports right now. I feel like I've, I'm in it. You're in it. Jonathan Iger's in it. Montville. You know, there aren't that many of us who – you know, a lot of a lot of sports writers, but doing these books just beats the living shit out of you, and yeah. it's terrifying. Well, it sure does. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Well, there's something else there, Jeff, too, that I, that I think is fascinating. When I got done with Aaron, I got a couple of different calls because obviously there are people who want to tell their stories, and 
once you've proven that you can do it, all of a sudden you do join a different class where people do begin to treat you with a bit more respect because then I think they mm -hmm. will do a good job with the project. And one of them was Frank Robinson. He didn't come to me, but after the book came out, there were numerous fans who said, you got to do a book on Frank. You got to do a book on Frank. How, how come he's the guy that no one talks about? And I said, well, because Frank's an asshole. That's the <laughs> and because Frank doesn't really want his story to be told. And, 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 and Frank makes life miserable for everybody. And however, there was another reason that I didn't talk about. And that was when you start to cover ground, we're always looking to tell different stories and we tell stories that interest us. That's probably the first reason why we write. What do we want to read? And I started to think, okay, how many more stories can I tell? How many, and especially when you're covering similar ground, I don't want to write about colored water fountains anymore. I don't want to write about you know, segregated hotels. And I already did that with Aaron. How much different would the Frank Robinson story be than a Hank Aaron story? They came along almost at the, at the exact same time, had very similar experiences. And I found Henry to be just more interesting, but you can't go back and, and cover that same territory. Right. So I began to really start to worry about, okay, well, what else interests me? And I think one of the good things is that there are a lot of things that still interest me. And I think all you need sometimes is to step back a little bit and recognize that there are so many things out there worth writing about. For me, I look at sports and you, you tell the, you know, you think about telling the story of 20th century sports. And it's one of the things that I, I talk about in this book, which is the, you know, the first, the first part of the story was the immigrant story, the way to become an American, as Jonathan Igg has written about and as Montville wrote about with his Babe Ruth book and as Kramer wrote about with the DiMaggio book, was through sports. The, those immigrant kids became American through sports, through their ethnicity, through you know being Italian and being a DiMaggio fan or a Lazeri fan or all of that. And it got you into not being the kid with the funny accent. You got into sports and that that helped you assimilate. The second part, the second part of the story is the integration story where all of a sudden, you know, post Robinson, now you had this, this group of Americans who had been denied access and they changed history, obviously through Robinson, through civil rights, etc. And then the third wave of the 20th century sports story is the commerce story, the athlete as individual corporation, the post-free agency money story, which is a very unheroic story in a lot of ways. But when you think about that, that last part of the story, it might be the most important and the least heroic, because that's that period where you do start to look at the players and you go, okay, they're becoming more and more distant from us. So what does that, what does that do for storytellers like us who want to tell these different these different tales and write these different books, but have we reached the saturation point where they're just not that interesting anymore? And that's a, that's an interesting place to be too. Do you find sports interesting? Like, do you, will you sit down and watch Padres Brewers? We watch an NHL game or an NFL game just for enjoyment. I do still. Absolutely. I do, but not anywhere near to the extent that other people do. Um, I don't go to sporting events unless I'm working mm -hmm. and but most of the mostly that's because I'm claustrophobic. I don't like being around a lot of people, right. um, which is a which is a strange occupation to have. Yeah, to be a little bit. Sixty thousand people when you when you don't like to be around them. Right. But I, I think for me, the thing that I enjoy most about sports, once again, when we talk about that um, that relationship between talent and management, is also labor and management. I, I think that's what that 
what gets me going about still enjoying sports is that once again, this group of people have an outstanding talent that they're that, that allows them to have a different life than the rest of us. I still find that interesting. I still find I still find the ballpark interesting when you're watching great games and you're watching the the concentration. I still love watching. Uh, obviously, I watch a lot of tennis and I still go to tennis matches and everything else. Right. I do. I, I do wonder, however, when you're talking about finding sports interesting, I still do, I do wonder whether or not um, I find the NFL to be the least interesting of the four. And I think that as the games become more and more homogenized, they they lose a lot of their power. I like characters. I couldn't believe that one of the guys that I that I missed the most was one of the guys that I liked the least in the first year I covered him, and that was Mike Mussina. Um, because there are so many guys out there now that don't want to talk and they don't want to ruin their brand and they don't want to say things on social media that get them in trouble and they don't want to be in the position of apologizing. If we're going to be in the clubhouse that much, they ought to be interesting. And when they cease being interesting, then then the stories cease to be interesting. It's really kind of weird. I, I just finished editing the best American sports writing. I was very happy to be asked, asked yeah, to do awesome. that. And so and um, writing that introduction, one of the things that I had, that I had noted was you were talking about us being part of the old school, the last of that dying breed. These people, the beat writers out there covering today, they do everything by podium, pregame and post, unless they're on the road for the most part. Everything is pretty much canned. And I'm thinking, how do you get those great stories now when you don't sit there when the cameras are off and the manager and Terry Francona is just sitting there cracking a beer in his office? I mean, that's where the work gets done. That's where the listening gets done. That's where you actually learn the game. Yeah. And if 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 the if covering the game is all going to be listening to Joe Girardi at the at the podium it really is going to lose a lot of its power it's not that interesting and you sit around and you go you know what i'm bored right now i kind of miss the old days when art howe would sit there and 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 sit in his office and we'd just sit in his office for for 20 minutes after the game or a half an hour after the game and just talk I that's agree. where the game is i agree 100 in fact i always said after that john rocker story rocker was suspended and demoted and i always thought that was I used to always say, like, he's a horrible guy. I disagree with everything he said. But if you're going to allow media members to talk to these guys, they're not all going to have your PC beliefs. They're not, not all going to exactly. share your ideals. And that, it's kind you of the beauty of it all. And well, exactly when, right. And I hated, I hated, as much as I hated him, I hated that mm -hmm. he was punished for speaking his mind. I just hated it, and I always have. And I agree. Well, I actually thought about that the other day. I was in I was in New York and I was getting my Metro card and there was you're looking around and you could hear all these different languages and all these people talking and it made me think of the rocker story. Yeah. But it also you made a a good point when you were talking about being in the you know, being with Rocker and having him talk as if you're part of the you know, you two, you know, two white guys in the you know, in the car talking and being part of that in crowd where you're in a safe I don't want to use the term safe space, but when you're in a in a safe environment where we can sort of just let it hang out a little bit, it reminded me when I was at the I was at the DMV one day and there was this woman in front of me in Oakland, and uh, she was a white woman and there I am, a black guy, but there was this Asian person up front, and I guess they were having difficulty with the language and. And we all know the stereotypes about Asian drivers and the whole thing. Oh, so this white, white woman turns around and looks at me and she goes, 
welcome to America. Here's your driver's license. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But I realized that what she was saying was, okay, I'm an American, she's an American, and now we're making fun of the other. So in other words, it all takes place within its own context. Exactly. Man. We live in a strange world. We do. We do. Um, getting stranger every day. Yeah, I agree. Make America great again. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, Howard, you are the uh, you are now officially the first writer to sling Yang with me, and um, slinging Yang with Jeff Perlman. Exactly. And there I, it is. We can. Uh, you're relatively active on Twitter, H Bryant forty two. You're on there every now and then. Like Full dissident. Um, That's yeah, me. Exactly. And uh, so, listen seriously. You're one of my favorite writers. It's a, it's a pleasure. As are you mine. And I have some books. I still have Bad Guys 1 that you haven't signed. Oh, well, next time I see you. I got the Bonds book over here you haven't signed. We haven't signed my books either. So we can have a a mutual (laughs) signing party uh, next time we see each other. Good. I'll see you in California in a couple weeks, actually. Oh, please do. Um, All right, Howard, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Good man. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Bye.